Thus, we are in Job chapter 32. Let me pray for us as we begin. Father in heaven, we know that the thing that we need most, or at least we want to know that the thing that we need most is to know that you love us and that you are not angry with us. Lord, weighed down by guilt and shame, you want to free us up because you lived a life that we could not live and you died the death we should have died. And Father, as we think about our congregation this morning as we prepare to open your word, Lord, we think about those who are sick, who aren't here. Lord, we pray that you'll heal them, that you'll protect them from discouragement, and that you'll remind them that the, you are with them and that they're missed. Father, those of us who are going through grief, experiences of really agonizing grief right now, Lord, we pray that you will allow the reverberations of your word for them to so marinate their heart that they do know that you're good and that they'd love you. Lord, help us to love you. It is the thing that satisfies us most deeply, and yet we have the hardest time doing it. So, Father, would you pray, would you help us pray for those who are struggling? We pray for marriages in our congregation, that you'll take the marriages, Lord, where husbands and wives need to talk about issues that they are just afraid to talk about, and you'll give them courage to address it for the sake of their children, the sake of their future children, the sake of their marriage, and the sake of our body, our church. Would you help us, Lord, to be a church community who is fiercely honest and is able to have hard conversations where there needs to be renewal, where there needs to be forgiveness offered and received. Lord, we pray now as we look at your word that you would change our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a campus minister in New Jersey at Princeton University, there was a girl whose name was Laura, and Laura came over one night. She banged on the door. It was late at night, and I answered it, and uh, Laura, she goes, Blake, I've got a problem. And I said, well, what is that? She said, like, so if you have an you have an employee who is given a task and over a large period, long, long period of time, you see zero progress. They would be fired, right? And I said, well, that's usually the case. Well, I have a problem with God because he's got a job to do, renew this world, and it has taken him forever. And there's such little progress. And look at the world today. You've got Crimea. You've got the struggles in your own marriage and the toil of your own work. You've got the struggle raising your children. Your life is full of these little griefs. And Laura said, look, any rational person who said you're making little progress they would say to that person you're fired so either god isn't good or he doesn't exist thanks for letting me come over that's all i wanted to say and she walks back to campus listen there's a lot of our kids a lot of children that are growing up in the church today especially the evangelical church and we are trying to cover over the griefs of life through all kinds of different trappings, but we're not teaching them how to talk about it together. This morning, 
yet again in a series on grief, I want us to learn how to talk about grief in a way that is both biblical and helpful. Can we do that together? We're going to look at the book of Job. Last week we looked at grief through a song in Psalm 42 and 43. This week we look at grief through a person. The most famous, successful business and family man, perhaps in all of literature, in all of history, who struggled, and unbelievably so. So let's look at the book of Job. The book of Job, as you know, is a book about a man who was in the midst of a wager with God, though he did not know it. A wager between God and Satan. Here's the story. Job chapter 1. I want you to listen to me, and then you'll see Psalm 42 on the screen in just a moment. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was a blameless and upright one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. In other words, he was fabulously wealthy. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Not only was he fabulously rich, by the way, he was also very religious. Verse 13 of chapter 1, if you're there. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another one and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck, them, struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another one and said, Your sons and daughters, Job, were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell upon the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then stunned, the writer of, Hebrew, the writer of Job says, In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And then toward the end of the book in Job 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. 
Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you and make it known to me. I had heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. There's a very popular speaker right now. His name is Simon Sinek. You may have heard of him. He has this concept called start with why. Simon Sinek is asking everybody, of course, corporate America right now, and he does this on a TED Talk, which is the seventh most viewed TED Talk ever given. And Simon Sinek says, if you're going to begin anything great, if you're going to go through anything great, you have to first begin at the end. You have to ask the question, why? Why do we need this product? Why do we need to do this? Why should we go about it that way? You start with why. And we love to start with why at the church, at Trinity. We, we think that question is really important. You know, why, why do we have service like this? Why do we meet in a gym? Why do we have core values of worship, community, and mission? Why, are we given, why do we name ourselves such a traditional name like Trinity? Why do we talk about the gospel all the time? We love why questions. Except I'm here to tell you as clearly as I can. There is one time in your life when asking the why question must come at the end. And that is when you're in the midst of grief. In grief, you have to begin with the end in mind. Can you say that with me? In grief, you have to begin with the end in mind. Listen, the whole book of Job, many of you know it. You grew up. You cut your teeth on it. The whole book of Job is about a man named Job who was fabulously wealthy and very, very successful. And unbeknownst to Job, the sons of God, including Satan, come before the God one day and God says to Satan, what have you been doing? And he says, well, I've been roaming the earth. And uh, God says, well, have you considered my servant Job? He says, yes. And you've given him everything, God. I would believe in you too if I had all that. And so God says, okay, don't touch him, but you can have him. And so Satan systematically takes away his wealth, takes away his children. And here Job unbeknownst to him, is in dire agony and grief. Remember, grief is the emotion you feel when you suffer. It is the emotion of having loved, a, a loved person, object, or role in your life taken from you. And Job experiences all of that. He has a loved person, his children. He has a loved object, his wealth. He has a lost role. He's no longer the greatest of the East. He's the one wearing sackcloth and heaping ashes upon himself. And then you know the story, you know, Satan comes back before God and God says, well, have you considered Job? Look, he is a man of integrity. Well, tit for tat, come on, skin for skin. And God says, okay, you can touch him, just don't kill him. And then Satan inflicts incredible sores on him. And after he inflicts these, inflicts these sores, Job cries out to God, why was I even born? He despises his own birth, 
And then three friends come to him, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And all three of these friends try to give him explanations for why this happened. Eliphaz says, look, the innocent never suffer. So you've sinned and jacked up somewhere. So figure it out, Job, and repent. And Job says, I have. I've searched. I don't know where. And then Bildad comes and he says, oh, that's true. Repentance is how you get healthy and whole. It was the first prosperity gospel sermon we ever heard. And so Bildad says, if you would just repent, you'd be better. You'd get your wealth back. Just go to church, Job. Come on. And Job says, that's not, that's not it. And then Zophar comes, and he basically is just another talking head. He says the same thing that Bildad does. And then, and then there's a young seminarian who comes, Elihu, who has all the answers. And so Elihu shows up, and he says, look, this is who God is, Job. I've read about this in my theology lessons. Here's the right theology. And you know what's amazing about all of Job's friends? They're all asking the why question, and Job is asking the why question. And if you're in the midst of grief, and you're like Job, you're asking the why question. You know what's amazing about the book of Job? There are 91 specific questions that these five people ask, Job's three friends plus Elihu, who is the fourth guy that shows up, and Job. They all ask, they ask 91 questions. 18 of those questions are different ways to ask why, why God. And you know what God does at the very end? He doesn't answer one of them. Do you know why? Well, that's a good why question. <laughs> because that's not the right question to be asking. If you're looking for specifics in the Bible about why you grieve and why you suffer, you're looking for specifics. Why exactly this, is this happening? God does not give that to you. Listen, all of you want answers, and God is trying to give you wisdom. Like, you all want step-by-step -step directions, and your loving Heavenly Father is trying to give you discernment. My response to Laura when she came to my house is, Laura, you're asking the wrong question. You shouldn't be asking, why does God allow this stuff to happen? Why has he made so little progress? Your question should be, why is he so patient with people who ask those kinds of questions? Why is he so patient with us to let us live in a world that he created and that we have continually been at odds with him? So, you know the three questions that God does answer? Here they are. The three questions that God does answer for Job are these. Back in 38, God finally speaks, and he launches into this beautiful, beautiful description of what he did in creation. And he says, Who is it that darkens the counsel by words without knowledge, dressed for action like a man? I will question you, Job, and you answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. I mean, you're so cocky about why I did things. Don't you know? Or who stretched the line upon it? Or on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? 
God gives this beautiful description of creation. You know why he does that for Job? Because God wants to turn Job's question from why God am I suffering so much to this question. Job, do you believe that I am good? I have laid out the foundations of the world for you. I set Pleiades in the heavens. I established Orion just the right way so that I could leave sailors across the oceans at night. I have given everything. Do you trust me? Do you believe that I'm good? When you grieve, you have to grieve with the end in mind. The question is not why. The question that your father wants you to be asking is do you believe I'm good? God does what he purposes. He says that very plainly in Job 42, the text that we concluded with. I know that you can do all things, Job says, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I am God and there is none other. I am God and there is none like me, Isaiah says in Isaiah 46. I make known the end from the beginning and from ancient times what is still to come. I say that my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. From the east, I summon a bird of prey. And from a far off land, I bring a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have established, that I will do. What I have purposed, Isaiah 46, 11, I will certainly bring about. Friends, do you believe that God is good? The second question that he asks Job is, Job, do you know that I love you? Do you know that I love you? Listen, a lot of us struggle with wanting to know if God loves us whenever we're in the midst of grief. We suffer. Like, we want to know, like, would you, would you please love me? And do you know that God loves you so much that he's not going to tell you why? Because do you know that if he told you why, you think you really want to know, but you don't? Because it would only make you bitter. He wants you to know how much he loves you. He's not mad at you that he cares for you more than you could ever imagine. So much to say that he wants you to remember what it was that he did for you, that Jesus came and he died for you. And then it says that Jesus was a man of sorrows and he was acquainted with grief. Listen, Jesus loves you so much. He just wants you to know that he loves you. In fact, he loves you more than you love you. You have a hard time loving yourself because of things you've done in the past. But Jesus doesn't. He forgives you when you believe in him. And he wants to wrap you in his arms and sing over you that you're my child, you're the apple of my eye, and I love you. Do you believe that God is good? And do you know how much he loves you? That's the second question God asks Job. Job, do you believe I love you? Do you know how much I love you? The third question is this. Job, do you know that I will complete you? That the reason why you're going through suffering right now, the reason why you're going through grief, is because Christ is faithful. Philippians 1 says, being confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to what? To complete it. Listen, your, your trajectory is going to be different than mine. 
you're gonna suffer in ways that I won't. I'm gonna suffer in ways that you won't. I'm gonna grieve over things that you won't grieve. And we may look at each other's griefs and go, those are so petty. They're not to us. They're heavy. And as we continue as a body to bear each other's griefs together and to pray for each other, we're reminded that God loves you so much that he's gonna complete you. This is what his will is for you. And we have to trust that. Listen, when, when God was talking to Satan at the very beginning of Job chapter 1, notice the kind of language that's used there. Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear you for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and the possessions have increased in the land. And then later, Satan says, well, skin for skin. And notice that Job says to his wife, after all this has happened, his wife says to Job, do you still hold fast your integrity, Job? This is his wife, with whom he had had ten children. Curse God and die. Some of you are going to have relationships where people look at you and go, I cannot believe that you still trust in Jesus and all that you're going through. It doesn't make any sense to me. And like Laura, they're going to say, my f student, they're going to say, either God isn't good or he doesn't exist. Can't be both. And notice what Job says. Shall we receive good from God? Shall we not also receive evil? And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Do you believe that God's good? Do you know that he loves you? And do you know that he will complete, complete you? The founder of AA is a guy named Bill Wilson. Some of you may have known this. Some of you have been through AA yourselves, may have heard this story. He says how privileged we are to understand so well the divine paradox, that strength rises from weakness, that humiliation goes before resurrection, that pain is not only the price, but it is the very touchstone of our spiritual rebirth. The book of Job is trying to help us get a handle on that truth. That pain for Job, who had everything and yet maintained his integrity through it, was the very thing that actually made Job such an incredible encouragement to me and to you, didn't it? Paul Turnier is a, is a professor, and he and his colleagues one time tried to list out the 300 most successful leaders in world history, the ones that were the greatest influence, and so they did. They listed out all these leaders that they came upon, and they came into a shocking realization. Alexander the Great was on the list, Julius Caesar, Louis XIV, George Washington, Napoleon, Queen Victoria. They all had one thing in common. You know what that is? They were all orphans. David Aikman wrote a book called Great Souls, and he said, let's look at the 20th century great saints that have shaped the 1900s. Who's had the most moral influence on our society? And so they, they boiled the list down to six people. Mother Teresa, who ministered at the extreme edge of human suffering. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, 
who was the one who chronicled the gulag. He was a Russian author who stood before a Harvard commencement speech one time and said the famous lines that the line dividing good and evil goes right through the human heart. Nelson Mandela, who was in prison for 27 years. Pope John Paul II, he grew up under a Nazi and a communist regime. And Billy Graham, the great evangelist. And they said of those six people who have greatly shaped the moral fabric of the 20th century, only one of them, Billy Graham, grew up with a sense of a normal middle class life. You're not alone. And it is through our griefs that the Lord actually shapes history because history tells us that some of the most influential thinkers and movers of our society have been those who suffered profound griefs most of their life. I have a friend who, um, who prays earnestly to God. He's a single man. He prays earnestly to God that God would take away his sexual drive. And he confesses to me every once in a while that he, he struggles with pornography and he's fallen once again and he just, he begs God to take away his sex drive. You know what I tell him? As gently as I can, I tell him, you know what? God probably will never decrease the amount of testosterone you have in your body. But do you know how he will help you endure this struggle? He will do it through prayer and the means of grace and the body of Christ and the preached word and some self-discipline and continual repentance. That is how you begin to make progress in the Christian life. Some of us are just saying, Lord, would you change my circumstance? Please, like, reduce my, change my body chemistry. And God says to you, I've given you the church. I've given you each other to bear your burdens together. At your community groups, do you talk about those kinds of things? At what level do things become too private to talk about? That's a great question for you to ask yourself before you go to a community group. Because God has given you his body, his people, to help pray with you and suffer through your griefs together. Listen, if you're bearing a heavy grief, and I as your pastor don't know it, people in your community group or your elders don't know it, please let us in on it. Listen, you don't know half the stuff I grieve over. You don't know half the sin in my life. If you do, you'd run out of this room. But we are bound together by the cross of Jesus Christ who forgives broken sinners. And so it's a privilege for us to walk in the midst of the messiness of each other's lives. Augustine said that God judged it better to bring good out of evil than to bring no suffering at all. Listen, God is not going to give you the why about the specifics of your circumstance, but he is going to tell you this. Why am I doing this? Because I want you to know that I'm good. Do you believe that I'm good? I want you to know that I love you and I'm with you. And I want you to know that I am completing you and I am faithful to do that even though you may not understand why, I love you. George Steiner, uh, who is an atheist, he's not a Christian, he, he wrote that we all know that Good Friday, which Christianity holds, Good Friday's coming up, 
It's on the 18th of April. We all know that Good Friday, which Christianity holds to have been uh, that of the cross. But the non-Christian, the atheist, knows all of it as well. This is to say that he knows of the injustice and of the interminable suffering of the waste, of the brute enigma of ending, which so largely makes up not only the historical dimension of the human condition, but the everyday fabric of our personal lives as well. Atheists know how much we struggle, and they know how messed up the world is. And we know intellectually of pain, of the failure of love, of the solitude which our history, which is our history and our private fate. We know also about Sunday. To the Christian, that day signifies an intimation both assured and dangerous, both evident and beyond comprehension of resurrection, of justice, of a love that has conquered death. And the lineaments of that Sunday carry the name of hope to the Christians around the world. And hope is the most deconstructible word word there is. But ours, he says, is a very long day's journey through Saturday, the day before the resurrection. And that's true for us as Christians as well. We are going through a very long Saturday longing for Christ to come back and make all things new. And he is coming for you. And he loves you. And he cannot wait to hold you. And he already is. A couple years later, when Laura came to my house, she was a sophomore. And a couple years later, when she was talking with a friend on campus, they were arguing about God. They were having this philosophical conversation and this guy was basically saying, look, if God, were an employ- if God were one of our employees and he made such little progress over such a long period of time, we would can him. We would fire him. And Laura is hearing this conversation. And she was like, but, but you can't. Because look how patient he's been. And you can't because if you were to fire him, there would be no basis for what is actually true and what isn't. What is moral and what's immoral. We could never say that Hitler was wrong. And she was not a she did not claim to be a member of the church at the time. She had long since forgotten the conversation I had with her. She was just completely running from God in every way. And as she's arguing about God's existence with this guy, she found herself rationally carried away into arguments for his very existence. And slowly but surely, Laura began to come back to the church. And she began to come back into a relationship with Christ because she knew that the only hope in suffering is running to, not from God. Because in the Christian God, you have a God who actually knows what suffering is like, unlike every other religion in the world. And that God himself took on suffering himself for us. So that he, as the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, might be able to know what it's like to bear the burden you're bearing right now. So that he might know what it's like to be able to weigh your griefs right now. It is only through the suffering on the cross that we are able to have hope in the midst of our suffering. Because the extent of Jesus' goodness and his love and his faithfulness is seen in him being a man who suffered griefs for you on the cross. Do you believe it? Friends, why is a very dangerous question to ask. It's a good one. But when you are grieving, you grieve with the end in mind. 
and you run to, not from your Savior, because He is good, and He loves you, and He is completing you. Do you see Him? Run to Him in repentance and faith, knowing that you have a Savior who cares for you so much, and He's with you. Let's pray. Father, would you remind us that you're with us in our suffering, in our struggles, in our doubts about your goodness. You're with us. And would you remind us that you're good? Would you remind us that you love us? And would you remind us that you are completing us, making us more and more into your image? So, Father, help us to be content with what we have. For you say, never will I leave you or forsake you. Thank you that you're with us. In Jesus' name, amen.